Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman Aaron. Busy show today. Today, talking about students heading back to college, high school seniors beginning to fill out those school applications. And we're going to take a look at what it takes to get into college, mm-hmm. especially after the Supreme Court's recent ruling against race conscious admissions. What does that decision mean for students and for the makeup? of college campuses. Yeah, and other changes are happening. Schools are looking at ending legacy preferences that is throwing out, they're throwing out test scores, and we want to hear from you. How do you feel about all of this? You can email us at studio2 at whyy.org, or you can call in. That number is 888-477-9499. Say it one more time. 888-477-9499. Because we miss you guys. We're going to hear from you. (laughs) Then we'll be talking about Philly's impact on the hip-hop scene as the genre turns 50. 50 years old. Yeah, the 50th birthday is like Friday. What would your rapper name be? You got one? Cherry T. Cherry T. I like that. Yeah, I like. Yeah, just keep it simple. Keep you know, <laughs> I'm going. I'm between Avalicious and Lil Wolfie. Ooh, uh, Lil Wolfie. <laughs> that should be it. Plus, we'll have some cool history about the battleship New Jersey. I love Lil Wolfie there. Uh, uh, all Lil of that. <laughs> all of that happening in just a couple minutes. But first, we got some news, and it's kind of hip hop related. Yeah, they didn't book Lil Wolfie for this concert. That I know. was the problem. So you, we're going to get him next year. Okay. Get Lil, Wolf, Lil Wolfie next year. Well, Made in America was called off. The yep. announcement came out on Tuesday. It's usually held Labor Day weekend. I've gone to it a number of years. It was founded in, you know, started here in 2012. Mm-hmm. But the MIA said, Quote, severe circumstances outside of production control led it to make this decision. Mm -hmm. Organizers say they will return to the Parkway next year in 2024. And if you bought a ticket, you'll get a refund. Now, the headliners were SZA and Lizzo. And, of course, you probably heard Lizzo is accused of creating a hostile work environment by three of her former dancers. They've sued her. Of course, Lizzo denies those allegations. But this would have been Lizzo's final show of the year. And now it's not happening. It's not happening. Uh, severe circumstances outside of mm. production control. You had that quote. That's a new euphemism for me. Yeah. Obviously, we don't know exactly what that means. You know, this concert's been around for a while. It's been a big event here in yeah, Philadelphia. It's it's, and it's already kind of had a tumultuous history. I remember mm-hmm. uh, Mayor Jim Kenney and Jay-Z, who mm-hmm. kind of organized this entire event originally, had disagreements about where it should be, like public disagreements. So there have been little flare-ups in the past, but, you know, canceling this close to the show um, and and not because of pandemic reasons is a big deal. And they say it's coming back in 2024. We'll see. We'll see, right? Because this this feels a little bit like a dot, dot, dot ellipsis situation. Yeah, but I will say this is had been a huge deal for the economy. I mean, there's estimated about $120 million brought to the Philadelphia uh, area because of this. I know a lot of folks came for the first time to visit Philadelphia because of MIA, so it boosted tourism. And it's in such a high-profile part of the city, right? It's that backdrop of the iconic structures of the city right there, and I feel like that that boosts its profile even more beyond the number I mean, of big people, name acts would come to big yeah. name acts performing in a in a, a setting that people really associate with the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. And so if that's not happening and we don't know why it's not happening, it is, you know, it just leaves you with some questions. It's a bit of a gray cloud. 
that's great that's cloud. what it is. Yeah. And uh moving on to our next story, a great yes. cloud had kind of been sitting over one T- of our Yeah, Temple yeah. University in North Philadelphia. So uh if but we're talking about on it, yeah. yeah, if we're talking about made in America, you know, it means getting close to back to school time. Yep. And a lot of students are, are heading back to campus in the next few weeks. And Temple has announced a new increased security plan to address student and parent concerns around safety on campus. I'll give you some of the details here. Mm-hmm. The plan includes 500 new cameras, more foot and bike patrols, a new app that students can use to request a walking escort and a, has a panic button embedded in it in partnership with the, the PPD. And later in the year, the university says it will use uh, AI technology that will be able to read license plates and detect guns. SEPTA, you might already know, uses a version of this technology. And so they're trying to beef up security because there have been some very sad, high-profile incidents Mm -hmm. in and around campus. In 2021, a student, Samuel Collington, was fatally shot. Uh, Christopher Fitzgerald, a Temple police officer, um, was shot and killed earlier this year. And so... Um, that has has heightened sensitivity and awareness of some of the security issues around campus. Yeah, and I have to mention that enrollment had been down about 2,800 students yep. uh, this year. And the school acknowledged that it was largely due to concern about crime. Yep. Um, and the acting president, Joanne Epps, um, has expressed hopes that these state these steps will make the campus more safe. I know a lot of students were concerned. You know, they wanted you know access to mental health services and all sorts of things because they were really nervous about being on campus. But hopefully, this is a step in the right direction. Right, and you whenever something like this happens, mm-hmm. you're going to have some tension between sort of the benefits of hardening a campus versus excluding the outside world over policing so all of those issues Mm -hmm. are going to swirl around this like you mentioned enrollment down at temple uh, you know you can't say it's an existential crisis temple is a big school if they have an enrollment dip it's not it doesn't mean that the school is going to close but it certainly seems to be impacting the trajectory of the school which you know over the decades had grown and really established a big presence in north philadelphia and uh look if if Students don't want to go there because they don't feel safe. Yeah. That's a humongous issue for the future of the it school. It is. I do want to give a glimmer of hope, though, mm-hmm. because the rates of violent crime in patrol areas around Temple, they went down this year. 31 incidents in 2022 compared to just 18 um, th- th- during that same time oh, period this year. So we are seeing that. a decline. So, you know, hopefully with these steps, campus will be safer and i'll tell you one thing that makes me feel a little bit safer is walking fast walking fast <laughs> Get, i'm a just, fast walker man i didn't know that actually yeah yeah oh yeah i can walk fast in heels we, like, I'm not we sit during the show so i, I actually haven't seen you walk a lot yeah but you know and but there's some good news for fast walkers like me i don't know if you're a fast walker Avi. it's also good news for people who rush upstairs and escalators there's a brand new study in jama that says just those few minutes of activity well it can lower your risk of cancer. Who just, knew? Just walking fast yep. can lower your risk of cancer. There you go. The All stu- right, lay it out for me. <laughs> the study looked at more than 22,000 people wearing activity trackers. I wear one. Those who move faster for just three minutes a day were 30% less likely to die of many cancers when compared to gentle walkers. Gentle walkers. Even without any other exercise routine. And these results build on years of evidence that prove vigorous exercise, the kind that increases your heart rate lowers risk of certain cancers. So walk fast, people. I feel like I'm a pretty fast walker. And I will say, um, 
when we're doing our other job, which is doing the newscast, top of the hour, bottom of the hour newscast, sometimes, you know, you got to take a break, right? You have to leave the studio yeah. usually to relieve yourself. Mm-hmm. And I always walk really, really fast. Not because oh, I, you going you going to count bathroom. Well, but well, this Walks? is but this, the, the reason I walk fast is okay. important. So it's not because I'm running out of time to get back to the studio. OK, it's because if someone interrupts me during my walk and wants to pull me aside for a conversation, then I'm at risk of not making it back in time <laughs> for the newscast. So I walk really, really fast so no one bothers me. And I'm realizing now that I'm doing my body a favor. <laughs> and lowering your risk. Yes. And lowering my risk of cancer. <laughs> this is beautiful. Who knew? Who knew? Well, you're going to want to um, at some point sprint to tour mm-hmm. the battleship New Jersey Ooh, in Camden good, on the good, Delaware good. River waterfront. It's the most decorated battleship in the world, also the longest and fastest. And if you've never walked the decks, now is the time because at the end of the year, the 80-year-old ship is headed for Philadelphia's naval shipyards where it was built, like a salmon returning to its spawning wow. ground. It's going to be dry docked there for repairs. They finally secured the funding for the work. And here to tell us more about this venerated ship and the coming restoration is New Jersey Battleship curator Ryan Samansky. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on Studio Two. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to get the ship out of the water. Get this ship out of the water. So mm-hmm. why are we getting the ship out of the water? The Navy's guidelines for maintaining inactive vessels say that we should take the ship out of the water once every 20 years just to repaint the bottom of the ship. Sitting in the water, it starts to rust and deteriorate. And uh, it has been over 32 years since we were last in dry dock. Wow. Okay, it's- and so, so you're, you're taking the ship to dry dock, sprucing it up. Specifically, what are you doing um, in terms of repairs? There are uh, three main things we want to accomplish. One is we want to blast off all the old paint and the rust so we can put a new coat of paint on. Uh, two is we want to make sure all of the openings in the bottom of the ship are secured. When we were dry docked for the last time in 1991, the Navy welded, uh, they're called blanks. They're essentially steel plates on all 130 some odd uh, openings in the bottom of the ship. And we want to make sure those are still in good shape, especially the ones around where our propeller shafts exit the back of the ship. And finally, we want to replace the anodes on the bottom of the ship that help prevent corrosion. We've got uh, over 1,200 zinc anodes, and the zinc is designed to rust and corrode before the steel does. And so let's give, for folks who may not know about the significance of the Battleship New Jersey, uh, tell us some of the cool facts uh, that are part of the history. So she was built right here in the Philadelphia area at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. The uh, workforce was about half South Jersey folks who rode the ferry across to the Navy Yard, about half Philadelphians. And uh, they built the ship nine months ahead of schedule to get into World War II in 1943. She serves as the flagship of both Admiral Spruance's Fifth Fleet and Admiral Halsey's Third Fleet during World War II. And then she's so good at her job that the Navy Mm. keeps bringing her back in Korea, Vietnam, and the later years of the Cold War in the 80s and 90s. And that's particularly unusual for a ship of that size? Oftentimes, the Navy will build a ship and they'll use it for 20 years and then they'll build a new one. Well, they never built a replacement for this ship. So over 40 or 50 years, they just kept bringing this one back. 
Yeah, and there were some fun facts. I understand like a dog lived on the ship for a while. Yeah, during World War II, the crew was about 2,700 sailors and a dog. The uh, dog was brought on for morale purposes and uh, usually hung out with the ship's Marines. What were some of the, the ship's most important moments in battle? The Battle of Leyte Gulf was the largest naval battle in history, depending on how you measure it. And we served as the flagship of the American fleet under New Jersey native uh, William Halsey. So he made all of his critical decisions for the battle right here on this ship. Wow. And the ship has been used. I know a lot of people, the ship is now a museum. People actually can do sleep there overnight. Tell us some of the current uses of the battleship New Jersey. Oh, yeah. So we are, like you said, a museum. You can come out without an appointment or anything and just walk through the ship at your own pace. The tour route is a mile and a half long if you go through the entire inside of the ship. Uh, you can have a wedding or event on board the ship. And uh, like you mentioned, we have sleepovers on board, our overnight program. Uh, we feed them dinner and breakfast in the same place where the crew ate, and you sleep in the same beds that the crew slept in. Why is it important, Ryan, to preserve the ship itself? Because it's one thing to preserve the memory of the ship, the history of the ship. You can do that in a museum on land. What do you think we get out of preserving the actual ship? In a land museum, you're looking at objects behind glass. You don't get to interact with them. With a museum ship like the Battleship New Jersey, the ship is the artifact, and she's not behind glass. You not only get to touch her, you go inside of the ship and experience exactly what the crew experienced from World War II through the Persian Gulf. You can walk exactly where Admiral Halsey walked. Wow. And once these repairs are done, when do you expect the ship to be back for public use? Uh, we're expecting to be in the yard for probably about 60 days. It'll, we're hoping to go in early next year. Uh, we haven't signed a contract yet, so we don't have an exact date for you. But I would hope to go in around January, February during our slow season. And uh, once we come back, it'll take us about a week to get everything put back together and then we'll reopen. Ahoy, mateys. That is <laughs> New Jersey Battleship curator Ryan Samansky. Thanks for being with us on Studio Two, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. And coming up next, the future of higher education as schools grapple with the end of affirmative action. Call us. We want to hear from you. That number, 888-477-9499. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. The Supreme Court's decision to end race-conscious admissions has students, parents, and colleges questioning what admissions and campus diversity is going to look like in the future. Yeah, and with more colleges considering ending legacy admissions and making many SAT and ACT scores optional, what criteria are admissions officers using to decide which students to admit? Now, the college admissions process has long been criticized for being unfair, favoring white and wealthy students. So how will ending affirmative action and some of these other changes affect who gets in and the makeup of all of these college campuses? We have two great guests here today to walk us through the future of college admissions. 
First, I'll introduce Eric Hoover, senior writer at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Welcome to the show, Eric. Oh, thank you very much for having me. We also have Aya Waller-Bay, a researcher studying trauma in college applications. She's also a former college admissions officer and recently published an article in The Atlantic. Aya, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And if you, our listeners, want to chime in, the email is studio2 at whyy.org. And our phone number is 888-477-9499. I want to start the conversation, Eric, with you um, by laying a foundation. Could you just explain to us how college admissions typically worked when using race-conscious admissions practices? Sure, absolutely. Um, For 45 years, colleges were legally permitted to consider an applicant's race as one factor among many factors in college admissions. And so it was not uh, the case that colleges had quotas or a specific number of seats that would go to minority applicants, underrepresented minority applicants. Um, It was just one of many facets that highly selective colleges were looking at in making their decisions. It could be, it's fair to say, for some students, a plus to be a member of an underrepresented minority group in college admissions. But it was just that, one plus among many other potential factors that colleges were looking at. It was a big one, though. It has meaning in our nation's history. It has great symbolic weight. And now colleges can no longer look at the checkbox that an applicant traditionally has been asked or invited to check on an application to note their race and ethnicity. Those days are gone. You said the words there, Eric, highly selective colleges. So what percentage of colleges would fit in that particular box? And by extension, how many colleges are really affected, at least in sort of the the front end, not the trickle down, but the front end of this change? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a reminder that there are thousands of colleges and universities in this country, and a small fraction of them, we're saying maybe about 200, um, would fit fit many people's definitions of uh, selective, highly selective, all the way on to highly rejective, right? (laughs) And it's those institutions where there is competition, and in many cases, intense competition for a very limited number of seats. Those are the institutions, at least on the at the front door, right? The college admissions door, everyone's trying to fit through it, only so many students can. We're talking about a limited number of institutions. However, we are talking about the nation's most high profile institutions, most sought after institutions. And so I wanna bring Aya into the discussion because you worked in college admissions at one of those institutions that are highly selective. Um, What was it like? what did you see in practice um, as far as the impact of the use of race-based uh, admissions practices when you were doing your work? Right. Thank you so much for that question. You know, as Eric mentioned, you know, race has been, you know, one of the many factors um, that colleges and universities have kind of used to make holistic admissions decisions. So it's really important to kind of think about um, holistically how universities, particularly at the highly selective or rejective um, class of institutions where, you know, we were considering students' racial ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, um, demographics such as where they lived, um, if they came from a high school where we were less likely to receive applicants from that 
that school, if it was an urban center, um, all of those factors, their first generation college uh, going status was important. We even, you know, asked what parents did, right? Uh, we looked at whether or not um, the parents were employed, um, perhaps in a, in a position or a role that may signal that even if the student wasn't technically first generation, um, they may still have first generation college going status. So, you know, race was a part of a holistic decision um, that we used to consider students' backgrounds and identities. You know, there was also more specific purposes when thinking about um, students, again, who were less likely um, have family members or people in their communities to attend a university, where there were special programs that students um, who were admitted who fit the criteria could gain access to to help bridge the gap between their high school experience and their college going experience. So and those types of instances, race were critical um, and also first generation or college going status to, to decide who might need a little additional supports once they enroll and matriculating to the institution. So again, it was a part of the holistic admissions decision, but as Eric mentioned, it was important. Uh, we are talking about the future of college admissions. College admissions would love to hear from you here on Studio 2. 888-477-9499 is the number to call. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Wanted to stay with you, Aya. So when you're looking at a student's application in the past, before the Supreme Court decision, it sounds like a kind of subjective, qualitative process. Like you, when we talk about weights here, we're not talking about numerical weights. We're talking more about sort of like a indefinable weight. Right. You're absolutely right. I mean, the entire college admissions process, frankly, is subjective and is qualitative. Um, so, right. There was no plus one. It, you know, there was no additional you know, there was actually not like a point system where mm. someone's weight or race rather um, was able to, you know, add, you know, additional 500 points to the application and make them admissible. You know, that was unconstitutional. Right. So it was a, certainly a subjective process. Um, and, and all of the processes in college admissions are subjective and viewed with meanings. Right. That we assign value to certain identities and experiences just as much as we consider, you know, students racial and ethnic background. We consider the athletic ability. Right. Or whether or not their parents attended the university, right, for a legacy. So, yeah, it was certainly and is, you know, it will continue to be, frankly, a holistic and, um, you know, subjective, qualitative kind of evaluations that universities and institutions, um, you know, still will employ to make very difficult admissions decisions at some of our more selective or rejective institutions. And so, Eric, I want to bring you back into the conversation. And I, you can chime in. Uh, if you have something to add, but I want to look at the the Supreme Court has now said that these type of race based um, admissions practices or affirmative action they're no longer allowed. Um, what will be the short term? Because I have people who are applying to college right now. What will be the short term change, and then the longer term implication? Well, I think in the short term, there's um, a headache, or at least a big question for many applicants. Um, of color right now, and that is the Supreme Court said that colleges can no longer consider an applicant's racial status per se. This student's an African-American student, this student's uh, a Latino-American student, but they, the court did leave the door open for colleges to consider what applicants might choose to share about their racial experience, mm -hmm. about their racial identity, be it a hardship or something positive. Um, Usually this would happen in their application essays. So right now, many students of color I've interviewed over the last several weeks are 
wrestling with the question of whether or not they want to write about that. Do they want to write about that aspect of their identity or their experience? Um, it's a tough decision um, for students to make. So that's, that's like an immediate-term question that many applicants um, and their counselors will have to figure out. Um, but I think uh, in the next year or two, it'll be interesting to see what happens at colleges and universities that are highly selective. What happens to their enrollments of black students, Hispanic students, Native students. Um, some institutions have told me they expect a precipitous decline in those underrepresented students, maybe even a 50% decline wow. from their current enrollments. Hmm. Wow. And other I, institutions say, sorry. No, go ahead. Finish your thought, Eric. And some other institutions say, well, we're worried about this. We take it seriously. But we're thinking more like 2 or 3%, 5 or 7%. Hmm. But I'll tell you, no one knows for sure. Yeah, that is quite a range. And Aya, I know you've written about uh, the college essay process. Mm-hmm. How do you think this is going to affect the content of essays that students write and, and submit with their applications? Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, as Eric just mentioned, the Supreme Court's decision um, and the, the majority opinion really left the door open um, as far as where students can talk about and discuss their race. And, and one of the um, you know, comments was, you know, it could be used to race you can talk about it as far as adversity and racial hardship and et cetera, but again, it could not be um, you know, considered in its own in its own right. And you know, as someone who studies trauma narratives and college admissions essays, you know, what I've been hearing from students that I've interviewed for my dissertation and research is, you know, these trauma narrative expectations are quite ubiquitous, where there is an assumption that, you know, students of color, and particularly black and racially minoritized students, because of their racial identities, have trauma to discuss and talk about. So what I perceive, you know, that that may happen is, you know, because students are going to be concerned about their racial identities being considered, right, if universities cannot look at the box that they they check, that there might be an encouragement from the K-12 side, nonprofit side, but also perhaps even universities that coerces or compels or strongly encourages students to talk about their racial identities and backgrounds in their college essay, um, but through the lens of trauma and hardship and, and adversity. And I find that practice to be perverse, and I, and I see, foresee it being even more of a problem as students are trying to find ways to talk about their identities and context while being legible and being able to, you know, be admissible in, in the college admissions process. So um, I think, you know, race neutral and colorblind admissions practices have not, you know, bode well for students of color. I think about here in the uni- in, at University of Michigan, uh, where we've seen a decline since affirmative action bans uh, took place in 2006. And I, I really fear that students uh, will be strongly encouraged to talk about racial trauma and hardship and adversity in their college admissions essays and to signal their racial identity and to signal diversity for institutions who will be fighting to retain and recruit uh, racially diverse students post-affirmative action bans. Yeah, and if you are just tuning in, we're talking about the future of college admissions. We have Eric Hoover, a journalist with the Chronicle of Higher Education. We also have Aya Waller-Bay, a PhD candidate studying trauma narratives in college essays. And we want to hear from you. Do you have questions or concerns about about the future of college admissions, you can call us at 888-477-9499, or you can email studio2 at whyy.org. I want to push back on the, that, that a little bit, Aya, and also bring you back in, Eric, because uh, I went to college at Boston University, um, top of my class in high school, high SAT scores, but was repeatedly 
told to my face that I was only got there because of affirmative action. Are there upsides to ending this practice, uh, you know, um, for students who may have walked through the halls at some of the most more prestigious institutions with a stigma or a thought that they actually didn't belong there? Yeah. So, you know, I also, you know, went to, you know, an institution in Georgetown University as a first generation low income college student. And there were, you know, murmurs from from students um, that, you know, racially minoritized students, black, Hispanic and Latinx students, you know, were admitted uh, mm-hmm. because of affirmative action. And, you know, my kind of response to that is sure. You know, if, if a university mm. practices affirmative action and had race conscious admissions practices, sure. But I think the stigma associated to affirmative action came with first people's misunderstanding of the practice and an assumption that because there was an affirmative action policy at an institution, that the people who were admitted were less qualified. And I think that is less about the the, the student themselves um, and more of some of the, the racism, frankly, and the classism um, and, and the positions that people take um, feeling entitled to certain universities, feeling entitled to certain positions, feeling in, entitled to certain seats. So, you know, my, my response to that is, you know, frankly, post-affirmative action students may still you know, receive mm-hmm. those responses. Um, students at University of Michigan, Black undergraduate students who were, you know, not even 5% of the undergraduate enrollment have also talked about, you know, feeling isolated, have also talked about some of the racial microaggressions and the tokenism they encounter. And this is in a state that have banned affirmative action for over a decade now. So, you know, it, it, it's going to happen regardless because of the, you know, frankly, racism um, that some folks uh, maintain in this country about who deserves access to certain types of institutions speaking of entitlement Mm. eric hoover um we're hearing a lot about legacy admissions now in the wake of this supreme court decision and there does seem to be some public pressure at least on universities to end that practice do we think a lot of universities will end legacy admissions in response to what the supreme court has done it's sort of an attempt i suppose to even the scales Um, Will there be other changes? What do you think will happen in the next, let's say, two to five years on that front? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, for sure, uh, I don't believe it'll be uh, the court of law that forces colleges to um, to uh, discontinue their legacy preferences. But the court of public opinion is another matter. We've already seen a handful of institutions do it. Dozens have dozens and dozens have quietly done it over the last several years. Uh, but in the wake of this decision, I do think pressure will grow, even from within some campus communities, be it students um, and, and, and alums um, on some campuses, will drive that pressure for colleges to um, to end legacy um, admission practices. I think it's important to note here that though there is a hunger, I think, um, many people who were upset by the Supreme Court's recent decision on race-conscious admissions, there's a hunger uh, for um, justice, for for a kind of pushback, right? And, and legacy is a, as a target. Um, a college, any college that does away with legacy admissions today mm. and does nothing else has not committed to do a single other thing in the name of enhancing student equity, racial diversity. Um, So just because a college pulls the plug on legacy doesn't mean it's going to do anything else um, to to make uh, its its classes more socioeconomically um, diverse. So I think that's important um, to note. Um, Legacy is a piece of the puzzle, but it's just one piece.
Yeah. And I want to bring in a caller. Um, Megan wants to ask a question. Megan, you are live on Studio 2. What is your question? My question, uh, thanks for taking my call. My question, I'm calling from Princeton, um, New Jersey. And obviously we have an elite college here and we a university and we have a high pressure um, community. And I'm there, we have the practice of leading AP grades a full point higher than any other class. So I'm wondering if, um, if that is an equity, I, I see it as an equity issue. Yeah. I'm wondering how college admissions um, is addressing that when they get these applications with like a 4.6 or a 4.7 GPA. If I, I have to assume that the colleges are savvy enough to realize that that's inflated. Yeah, but I'm trying to argue for not waiting AP grades. Oh, I'm in conversations with the administration, but I'm getting a lot of pushback, yeah. and I'm wondering if this is not does not go hand in hand. We need to do something. Yeah, because I know yeah. that AP classes are classically like under um, undertaken by or not not taken. Yeah. Well, we, we I, get uh, yeah, Megan. Yeah, yeah. thank you so yeah, much for that question. Okay. I want to make sure that our guests have a chance to respond. So, talking there about weighted mm -hmm. GPAs, and I think more generally, what Megan is getting at, uh, Eric Hoover, is this idea that look, students don't come with the same privileges and advantages, mm -hmm. and it's up to the admissions officers to try to weigh all of that. Now, they cannot use race anymore in that discussion. Will they be able to adjust somehow, and how might they adjust? Yeah, it's a great question. I just, I think it, um, it goes back to something I, I was saying just a few minutes ago. I mean, colleges have already been doing this. They've already been looking at the context and not just what a student has achieved or the classes that he or she may have taken, or uh, in fact, whether um, some or all of their grades are weighted differently um, than those of another applicant. So um, colleges have already been looking at um, how many AP courses or advanced courses are offered in a particular applicant's high school? Um, how many how many courses were available for that student to take? And yes, colleges have all kinds of different ways of kind of um, recalculating um, GPAs um, in ways that in some cases might not look familiar uh, to the students or the, the folks who worked at that high school to try to um, uh, standardize as best they can um, and also contextualize um, the, the fact that your achievements and the classes that you have taken and the grades you have earned might not look the same, might not be an apples and orange comparison with mine. And so that has already been work that is underway, and now it'll be, I think, um, even more important for colleges to perfect it. Yeah. And I want to bring in a comment um, from Jean from Media who writes, this pressure to write about race is also coming at a time when teachers are scared to talk about race with their students in classrooms because it's been politicized. It may be difficult to help students with their essays. That's one point. But I, I want to wrap that in because a lot of students of color, I've talked to folks, are want to opt out of all of this. They, they're leaning towards HBCUs in droves. Um, a lot of uh, admissions um, applications have gone up, right? Um, yes. I, I want to talk about the impact on historically black colleges and universities. Um, will this, is this an opportunity and are they ready for that opportunity? Yeah, I, I think this is a phenomenal point and, and it, it 
reminds me of the earlier question about what are some of the more kind of immediate impacts of affirmative action bans and this most recent court ruling. And one of those impacts um, is HBCU uh, enrollment and, and also just the enrollment of, you know, minority serving institutions at large, including our HSIs. Uh, we do foresee, you know, HBCU enrollment increasing and applications increasing because one of the less, you know, discussed impacts of affirmative action is students opting out of institutions that they would have otherwise been highly qualified to get, you know, admitted into, right? So it's not just, you know, students, um, are not, um, you know, are applying and not being admitted to a perhaps a historically or predominantly white school. Some students who would be more than qualified to gain access to some of our, you know, nation's most kind of selective institutions will opt out because of fear of marginalization, because of fear of social isolation, because of fear of racism and discrimination. So we are seeing, you know, students then submitting applications to HBCUs where they don't have the threat of being one of few um, in a uh, engineering course, right? So I do think that enrollment will increase. And we've already seen, you know, um, some presidents and, and admissions officers at HBCUs come out to say that they are having to now think about how to reform or reimagine their own admissions practices, whether or not they need to add an, an interview or add an additional essay, because they know that they will not be able to accept all of the qualified students who are applying, and that they're having to, you know, rethink their own admissions infrastructures to think about the influx of students. So we are going to see ideally, you know, more dollars um, kind of being um, given um, to our historically black colleges, mm. universities, so they mm. can build out some of the structures that they're going to need to support the students who are going to apply, I believe, in droves. I think we're really going to see a really um, important shift um, to our historically black colleges, universities, post affirmative action ban. Fascinating. Uh, Eric Hoover, uh, historically black colleges and universities, uh, uh, might be affected here. Will other schools be affected by the fact that some of these more highly selective schools might have less diverse classes? Let's talk about sort of the trickle out effects of this decision. Yeah, I mean, I was just on the phone with uh, the president of a community college this morning who expects that enrollment at her institution, based on the population it serves, um, could increase substantially in the next few years. Um, but as, you know, echoing something I had just said, um, that could be a very good thing. But it also, she said, presents her with challenges. This college president said um, an influx of students who maybe think they at least want to start at this two-year college and then transfer later. Um, she wants to be sure that she has the resources and support networks in place to serve not just more students, but perhaps um, a greater number of diverse students who, in many cases, she said, might have needs and, um, and expectations of the campus that um, many of her other students do not. So yes, more students knocking on the door, coming to the campus, uh, good thing. Um, the question of how to support them um, and make sure that that's working well, um, that's, that's an opportunity and a challenge. Yeah, and we'll have to leave it right there. We've been speaking about the future of college admissions. Thank you so much to Eric Hoover, a journalist with the Chronicle of Higher Education, and Aya Waller-Bay, a PhD candidate studying trauma narrative and college essays. Thank you both for being on Studio Two. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, 50 years of hip-hop, and Philly deserves a ton of credit. We'll tell you why. Coming up on Studio Two. 
And welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erend. And I'm Cherry Gregg. This week marks exactly 50 years since DJ Cool Herc performed the first breakbeat at a party in the Bronx, marking the figurative birth of hip-hop. The exact birth date, August 11th, 1973. But of course, this is Studio 2, and we're in Philly, <laughs> and the city of Philadelphia deserves a ton of credit for the evolution of the genre. From big names like Questlove, mm-hmm. Eve, Will Smith, and Jazzy Jeff, more recently Meek Mill, to the original sounds of turntable scratching and classic beats, some say Philly is at the heart and soul of hip-hop. And one of those enthusiasts is Elizabeth Wellington, columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, who curated the 50 Years of Philly Hip Hop Project. She joins us right now to talk about some of these you know, lesser-known moments in history that cemented Philly's mark on the hip-hop scene. Elizabeth Wellington, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, how y'all doing? We're great. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Seriously. So we know that New York City is the place where hip hop was born. But you argue and all the folks you talk to argue that Philadelphia is the right hand of hip hop. Lay it all out so that we truly understand Philly's place. So that we believe. Yes. Well, I got to start out and say full disclosure, I'm from Queens, New York. Uh-oh, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh, behind enemy lines. Uh-oh. From Jamaica, Queens, so you know if I'm coming to Philly's defense, there's mad truth to this situation. <laughs> so basically, and this is what I thought was really interesting, I spoke to people like Lady B, who was the actual first woman to, to uh, record a record ever. Like before Salt and Pepper, it was Lady B and she was in Philly. Philly's Lady mm-hmm. B. Philly. <clears throat> and, um, you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince were the first rap act to win a Grammy. Do you know how big that is? Huge. And do you know, side note, they didn't even televise the Grammy. They yeah. didn't televise that because mm-hmm. they, you know, people didn't love hip hop. Um, the first record to be banned, the first rap record to be banned was this record called Discombobulator Boobulator by MC Breeze. Mm. Um, the first gangster rapper. Um, was not Ice T, y'all. It was Schoolie D, Philly's PSK, Schooly Philly, D. Fifty well, Seconds. Can we get a? We're gonna play a little clip of that. Actually, this is Schoolie D's nineteen eighty five song PSK. What does it mean? Considered the first gangster rap song straight out of West Philly. Let's hear it. PSK, we're making that green. People always say, "What the hell is that mean?" For the people who can't understand, a one whole boy became a man. As for the way you scream and shout, one by one, I'm knocking out. Came for the way my DJ cutting. Other MCs, man, you ain't saying nothing. Rocking on to the break of dawn, I think cold money, your time. So, why is that an important moment in hip hop history? What was Schooly D saying that people weren't saying before? Well, up until then, hip hop was like, you know, I got my fresh ballys, I got my fresh shoes. It was kind of, you know, slick Ricky. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the house. I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm your dude. And so that was the moment. And this is something that Jazzy Jeff said, right, when we were talking. He was like, "This is the first record that we didn't have to be all happy. Mm-hmm. Like we can talk about what was going on in our neighborhoods. We can talk about what we're seeing. Um, but if you listen to the beat on that and the scratch, like, you know, I'm sitting up here wanting to wop it up like I'm 12 <laughs> years old. But, you know, it's it's still like it's a high note. 
Like, you really have to listen to the lyrics to know that he's talking about, well, well, homeboy became a man. Like, you know, he, you have to really listen to hear what he's saying. So, you know, and 52nd and Parkside is 52nd and Parkside then and 52nd and Parkside now. But so many phenomenal artists are from that part of Philly. Mm, yeah. And I got to ask you because DJ Jazzy Jeff was on the show back in May and he talked about what made Philly different in hip hop. And it was specifically the DJ. How and, and, and we're going to, you know, talk about the DJ culture in Philly and why this city stood out and above everybody else. Well, one of the things that I found most interesting, because I, like I said, I grew up in New York, so I remember the MC in the front of the MC mm-hmm. was in the front, like you know they would have like a turntable, and the MC would be in the front, and the DJ would be in the back, mm. kind of like Run DMC and Jam Master J, right? That was kind of how you think of it. But all the people in Philly said that was flipped. Here in DJ Philly, was at the front. The DJ was in the front, mm. and the artist was in the back. And that's really kind of amazing because they were actually able to practice. They had DJ crews here in ways that we didn't have them in New York. You know, basically the five elements of hip hop were the foundation was really set here. Mm. And so you get to see, you know, that DJ coming out and then, you know, basically his hype man. You know, MC Mm. Breeze wasn't really, he was a hype man pretty much for this group called B-Force. Like they had real DJ crews running around the city talking about that. I would love to bring in a clip here. This is DJ Cash Money in 1997, Mm -hmm. one of the killers of the genre. Let's hear it. That is real still there. And what I love about the 50 years of Philly Hip Hop Project is that you don't just focus Mm -mm. on the MCs and the rappers. You talk about the DJs. You also talk about the people who helped create the culture here in Philadelphia that was exported all over the world. Tell me, for instance, about Ruben Big Rube Harley, marketing director at Mitchell and Ness. What's his role in all of this? Big Rube is one of my favorite people. And I met Big Rube shortly after I moved to Philly. So... Remember those big jerseys that everybody was wearing back yeah. in the big sports you know, jerseys. The big sports jerseys. You know, it was Rube here, right at Mitchell and Ness, who basically decided that this was going to be a trend, mm. and he marketed it to Jay Z. He gave it to all the big rappers at the time. Freeway, I think Usher was in them. Like everybody was in them. <laughs> Little baby Usher was walking around a big old jersey. <laughs> and um, you know, it was and it was a throwback jersey. So then it would have been you know, somebody from history. Like now all the throwback jerseys would be Iverson. But so it was it was vintage. It was yeah. a vintage jersey. Cause you know mm-hmm. we always gotta put our own twist on it. If y'all wanna call it vintage, we gonna call it throwback. <laughs> and so these big jerseys and that was just kind of really amazing. Those kind yeah. of became ubiquitous. They were ubiquitous. Everyone was wearing these old sports jerseys. At and, the club, all over the place. And Girls. I gotta Yeah, and I gotta ask you about sneakers because and it ties to the jerseys, sneaker culture, jewelry all a big part of hip-hop culture and we had a big sneaker company right here in our area that was tapping in Mm -hmm. and the best part about that was the gallery was the place where the people would go and get it when um one of the things that i talked to charlie mack about he was talking about top tens he was talking about dr j sneaker and you know that was just and philly has always been at the cusp of that like one of the things i remember growing up in new york and and y'all probably gonna laugh at this is that you know because of will smith Every girl in New York thought all the boys in Philly were cute. (laughs) 
you know, we thought that... And that's true, right? We thought men in Philly would just falling out looking good. And so, and part of that is the culture. Like, people wanted to come come here and, and party and see and see the scene. And speaking of place, because you mentioned the gallery, you also talk about how Belmont Plateau and yes. Fairmount Park was a huge part meetup point to establish the Philly hip-hop scene. And, of course, it gets shouted out in a DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince hit from 91 called Summertime. Let's hear a little bit of that. Out the fellas to tell them who's best Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzos Or in your Nissan sitting on Lorenzo's Back in Philly we be out in the park A place called the Plateau is where everybody go that's the plateau where everybody go and and you I love that in this project you also talk about the places it's not just the people right and you know you know as a person who's spent a lot of, who's lived in Philly for a long time but also a person who grew up in New York's hip hop culture that was the first time we all heard about Belmont Plateau mm-hmm. you know that was the first time anybody outside of Philly was sort of aware of that. So I just thought that it was a really important place to mention. And, you know, you just love the video of, you know, people looking fly driving <laughs> around in a car. And unfortunately, we have to leave it there, Elizabeth, because, but I, I want to say 50 years of Philly's hip hop, your project curated by you. Amazing. Go right ahead. I just want to say one thing. If you guys get a chance to go out and buy the paper on Sunday, please do because it's a whole takeover section mm. of the Inquirer and you can kind of look at it as like a Philly history roadmap book. Like it's collector's a, it's, item. A, it's a collector's keepsake item. Elizabeth Wellington, columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, curator of that 50 years of Philly hip hop project. Let's go out on DJ Cool. Everybody jump. Jump, 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 jump. 